Queer Money Bingo is coming live to Denver, Colorado on Thursday, June 13th at the downtown Capital One Cafe. To sign up for your door prizes, pride sunglasses, free coffee, more swag, fun, and games, go to queermoneypodcast.com forward slash tour. Welcome back to another episode of Queer Money. Are you burdened with suffocating student loan debt? Are you considering filing for bankruptcy? What are the long-term consequences of deferring student loan payments? Today, we host our friend and bankruptcy attorney, Jay Fleischman of ConsumerHelpCentral.com. Many of our listeners tell us that they're struggling with student loan debt, how it's affecting their personal and their financial lives, and how they don't know what to do. If this sounds like you or someone you know, this episode is for you. Here we go. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. Bum, bum, bum. Well, today we're talking about the biggest college hangover that anyone will ever have. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think the three of us could right. challenge that. <laughs> it's the one that lasts for many people years, if not decades, and that is student loan debt. And for many people today, that college hangover is a headache that is really affecting major aspects of their lives. So today on Queer Money, we have a guest who is all about this topic of student loan debt and specifically helping individuals who are deep in the trenches and are trying to desperately figure out ways that they can shed that debt. So we'd like to welcome to the show, Jay Fleischman. Jay, because our listeners don't know you, we would love for you to introduce yourself. Hi, guys. First of all, thanks for having me on. I am a student loan lawyer. I've been a, you know, student loan lawyer kind of sounds weird. <laughs> half, half the people that I tell that to think that I can give them a student loan, but that's not quite it. I help people with bill problems in general. And in specific, I help people who are struggling under the weight of student loan debt. And that could take a number of forms. It could include bankruptcy. It could include collection defense tactics. It can include negotiation. It can include anything that's going to help get somebody into a better financial physical space and headspace. So in grand terms, that's what I do. And I happen to have a law license and I've had a law license for 22 years. Oh my God, I feel old. But anyway, so um, so that's in broad strokes what I do. And I've got offices in New York as well as in California. With respect to federal student loans, I help people nationwide. With respect to private student loans, I help people only in New York and California. And as a sideline, I also teach lawyers how to do the things that I do. Awesome. So mm -hmm. in a sense, you said that comment, uh, student loan lawyer sounds like such an awkward term. You're really a fixer. You're there to help people fix their financial situation. And your specialty in this area of fixing financial situations is student loan debt. Right. That I am allowed to say, legally, because lawyers are as constrained <laughs> as financial professionals are, yeah. I am allowed to say that I concentrate and focus my practice in the field of student loan resolution, I'm not allowed to say that I specialize. Ah, gotcha. You can, but you can say. <laughs> you can well, say it all you you're want. You're the specialist that we know, and that's why you're on the show. <laughs> Thank you. you bet. That's awesome. So with your profound knowledge and experience in student loan debt, what is your take on this student loan debt crisis that seems to be just escalating year after year for students? Oh, I think that 
we have barely seen the tip of the iceberg. I think that this is a problem that only gets worse with time. When people come out of school owing in excess of $100,000 in student loan debt, so much of it being guaranteed and co-signed by other relatives who are primarily going to be older than they are, parents and grandparents, it's one of those problems that ripens like cheese, but not in a good way, or mine, <laughs> but not in a good way. You've got people coming out of school with $100,000 in debt, and they're making not a terribly tremendous amount of money. So they're putting the loans into forbearance, which means that the loans are increasing in their overall balance. Interest capitalizes every time they come out of forbearance. And by the time they're making enough money that they would have been able to service the original $100,000 worth of debt, I've seen people with $400,000 in federal student loan debt. Ooh, wow. That, yeah. It's, I spoke to somebody earlier today who graduated with $82,000 worth of federal student loan debt, has consolidated, gone into forbearance, and done it a number of times, and now owes near on $410,000 in federal student loan debt. That is crazy. Jay, just so that we can be clear here, forbearance is a way for someone to basically kind of stall their payments. Is that right? Yes. Forbearance is, and there's forbearance and deferment. Deferment is primarily used when you're in school, though there are circumstances where a loan servicer can put you into deferment uh, after that. When you're in deferment, your loan payments are no longer due. Interest continues to accrue. But on certain federal student loans, what are called subsidized student loans, the government eats the interest while you're in deferment. During periods of forbearance, interest continues to accrue and the government does not eat the interest on even the subsidized loans. So it's a more expensive way, but forbearance is normally up to three years in total during the term of an individual loan. Right. And so when would somebody go into forbearance? Primarily financial hardship. The primary reason why people go into forbearance is they get their student loan bill and they can't make the payment. And so they'll call the servicer and say, I can't make the payment. What can I do? And the servicer will say, well, we'll give you six months worth of forbearance. That seems to be an easy enough fix. But when you're dealing with, say, $100,000 accruing interest at 8%, which isn't uncommon, six months worth of interest is a not insignificant amount of money. And then again, when you come out of forbearance, that interest that is accrued during that six month period of time capitalizes. So in other words, it moves from the interest column into the principal column and new interest accrues based upon that new principal balance. So effectively, it's interest on top of interest. Right. Just like credit card works where you're paying more and on that total balance. So. It's like the bad example of compounding interest. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but it's a real exactly. life example that people can use. Right. <laughs> now yeah. just apply that to investing and you'll make your situation a lot better. Right. See, <laughs> so it sounds like there are several options for somebody who finds themselves in financial trouble because of student loan debt. How do you navigate which options are best for someone? Are there some benchmarks? Sure. First of all, let's separate private student loans from federal student loans. And when I say federal student loans, I mean Perkins loans. I mean your Stafford loans, both direct as well as what are called field loans, F-F-E-L. 
Um, and those were private loans that were given out with guaranteed federal funds up until the end of June of 2010. And those are all in general federal student loans. Federal student loans come with a number of repayment options. There are income-driven repayment options. There's long-term forgiveness. There's total and permanent disability and forbearance and deferment and all of that. Private student loans are what I call pay or die. And it's, yeah, it's, I hate to laugh at that, but it's so true. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a morbid way of looking at the situation. But a private student loan has nothing to do with any government regulation that deals with student loans. In fact, the only times that a private student loan matters that it is a student loan is either A, when you're looking to deduct the interest that you pay during the year, if you're within the income level that allows you to do that, or if you're considering filing for bankruptcy to be able to deal with those student loans. And we can talk about the whole bankruptcy issue later, but, sure. but that's a private student loan. It's a private deal between you and a bank. Right. They have no protections. Federal student loans have all of these income-driven repayment plans. And when you're talking about benchmarks, you're looking at income, and by income, I mean adjusted gross income, line 37 on your IRS form 1040. You're looking at adjusted gross income, you're looking at family size, and you're looking at what the payment's going to be as a result of that. And family size includes you, your spouse, any children that reside with you, any of your children that do not reside with you that you provide more than 50% of the support for, and the, what I call your deadbeat buddy from high school who never got his <laughs> stuff together, your couch surfing friend who is absolutely not related to you whatsoever, but he's living on your couch and you're floating him with food and rent. That person actually qualifies as a family member when determining a payment amount under any of the income-driven repayment plans. And different plans offer different sorts of benefits, but in broad strokes, it's family size and adjusted gross income is what you're looking at. Gotcha. So I know that OJ Simpson had one of those kind of people. Are there a lot of those kinds of people that just live on their friends' couches? Cato <laughs> 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 oh, <all right. laughs> Kalen counts. Yeah, that's his name. Wow, Cato was smarter than I expected. <laughs> yeah, see, there you go. He was, he was doing it all to get out of the student loans. Things kind of went out of control, but you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, there are a lot of people who can't afford their student loans because they're caring for other people that normally wouldn't be considered dependents in a tax sense because family size has nothing to do with the number of people that you're claiming as dependents on either your W-4 for your payroll or on your IRS 1040 on your income tax return. But there are a lot of people who are supporting other people out there. So would it be rare for someone to file for bankruptcy if all of their loans were through the government? My personal sense is, and I've been a bankruptcy lawyer for, it'll be 22 years in December of 2017. And we in the bankruptcy world are staunch advocates for allowing student loans to be fully dischargeable in bankruptcy. And I do believe that. That having been said, Federal student loans offer so many protections and so many payment opportunities that bankruptcy is kind of icing on the cake. 
And in fact, in some situations, bankruptcy may be the worst thing for you if you have federal student loans. And I'll give you an example. When you have federal student loans and you file for bankruptcy, the loans are put into an automatic forbearance. So during the time that you're in bankruptcy, you're not required to make regular payments. And there are different kinds of bankruptcies. Either you're going to wipe out your debt in a chapter seven, or you're going to repay a portion of it in a chapter 13. But you're put into this automatic forbearance, which for most people sounds like a great idea. Forget about the whole interest capitalization. But if you have direct loans, direct student loans, and you are working in a qualified employer, federal, state, municipal government, or tribal government, or a 501c3 not-for-profit or a variety of other not-for-profits, and you make 120 on-time monthly payments under one of the income-driven repayment plans, you can get the balance of your student loans wiped out tax-free using public service loan forgiveness, which is great. But you've got to make those 120 on-time payments. Right. If you're in bankruptcy, and let's say you're in uh, Chapter 13 where you repay a portion of your debts over a five-year period of time, if you're in forbearance, you're burning five years out of the 10 years required towards public service loan forgiveness. You're effectively tacking five years onto that loan repayment that you might not have otherwise had to contend with. So don't look at bankruptcy as the be all and end all, because in certain situations, it can actually work against you. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot so, of sense. So what you're saying is that for someone who has their student loans through the federal government, that there are a lot of protections there that they want to and should explore before they begin thinking about bankruptcy. And just a little plug for you and your industry, talking with someone like you is going to help guide them in that direction as to which ones of these options that they should maybe be using at that particular time versus right. someone who has all of their loans through a bank or a private lending institution they may not have all of these options available to them. So again, they'd want to talk to someone like you and someone in your industry that could really help guide them about the best steps to take if bankruptcy is the option, how to get prepared for that or what they can do in the meantime to get themselves back on track financially. Yes, absolutely. And when you're talking about bankruptcy to wipe out the student loans, you don't automatically get out of your student loans when you file for bankruptcy. In order to be able to get those student loans discharged, you've got to meet a certain criteria. And for the vast majority of the country, that's called undue hardship. It's a three-part test, and you are required to file a separate lawsuit in the bankruptcy court against the student loan lender, so either the federal government or the private lender, you are actually filing a separate lawsuit. And it takes as much time and as much resources and as much energy as would any other massive civil litigation. So you've got to realize that if you're going into bankruptcy you really want to be there for other reasons beyond the student loans. A, if you can afford to do it, and very few people can, and B, if you've got a strong enough case, and strong enough case varies state by state because different judges have different opinions of it, you want to make sure that if you are not successful in your attempt to wipe out those student loans, that 
you haven't wasted your time, your money, and the fact that now you're sitting in bankruptcy court. Right. So I guess that that makes me ask the question, based on what you said, you kind of want to package it all together. It isn't, I can declare bankruptcy for my student loans only, or I guess you you Could tell you? me, can you do that only, or is it an all or nothing? Bankruptcy is an all or nothing. Think about it in this way. Rather than filing for bankruptcy on a debt, recognize that bankruptcy is, it's like the amazing Technicolor dream coat. <laughs> it is your absolute protection from creditors while you are in bankruptcy court. And so as part and parcel of that, you're required to disclose all of your assets, disclose all of your debts, disclose all of your income, disclose all of your expenses. It is a not inconsequential process in terms of the amount of effort and energy that it takes on the part of the person filing for bankruptcy to say nothing about the attorney time, but it takes quite a bit of energy to get through that process. So bankruptcy is protection. Bankruptcy is not a debt by debt situation. Gotcha. Yeah. I love the Joseph reference. It's one of my favorite musicals of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> I made David go see it and he was like, why are we going to see this religious themed musical? And it didn't take him long to figure out. Right. <laughs> see? It's, it's a great show. Yes, but, exactly. You know, it, and that's the stuff that they don't make that stuff anymore. <laughs> no. I just feel like they don't make that stuff anymore, but totally different conversation. But yeah. now we totally sound like great. old men. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I have a question. This probably speaks to my ignorance, but why would someone, with all the protections that you get from the federal loans, why would somebody choose to get loans from a bank? Ah, that is the $64,000 question. Yeah, um, I win. <laughs> Only I am old. Right. I told you I'm old. <laughs> Rub it in, why don't you? But seriously, have you seen how expensive it is to go to college these yes. days? Yeah, I don't think I would go at this point. <laughs> I definitely wouldn't go at this point. Well, I don't want to say definitely, but it's really expensive. I graduated from law school with... $28,000 worth of student loan debt. Granted, it was in 1994. And I looked at it and I said, oh my God, how am I going to ever pay this back? But there are very few degrees that warrant that amount of financial investment. And so I'm answering the question in a roundabout way, but there's only so much federal student loan debt that the government will originate for an individual borrower. And so to fill that gap, you've got private student loan lenders, you've got your private banking institutions, and now a number of startups have come around to offer the products as well. It's incredibly profitable for mm -hmm. these companies. I think at last call, I think it was 95 or 96% of those private student loans now come with a guarantor on them, a guarantor requirement. So you're talking about getting mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, uncle, aunt, an adult to co-sign on this massive amount of debt. So why people are going into private student loan debt? Because they're halfway there and they still need more money and this is the only way to get it. I'm sorry, but that just sounds like a racket. <laughs> yeah. well, oh, it's a total racket. <laughs> It's a total racket. And they sell you on the fact that, well, once you come out of school, it'll be low payments. It's not a problem. And then once you've made two years worth of payments on time, you can apply for a guarantor release. Well, of course, 
the vast majority of guarantor releases are never granted. And of course, why would a bank give a guarantor the ability to get off the hook? Because it's more pockets to dip into in the event that the borrower goes into default. Most guarantor releases are not given. Most borrowers don't make 24 months worth of on-time payments the minute that they come out of school because it's not 24 months worth of payments once the loan comes due after all the forbearances. It's once you graduate and that first loan payment is due, if you make all 24 of them on time, then we'll think about the guarantor release. Most people, when they come out of school, they're looking down the barrel of this enormous gun and they call up and they get a forbearance. Well, that throws them out of that 24 months worth of on-time payments. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. It's a a total racket. You're smarter than I am. (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) Why does the cost of tuition continue to rise even though all all these schools are sitting on gigantic endowments? (laughs) <laughs> oh, oh, I think, I think oh, that's wait. a whole nother podcast. Too. <laughs> wait, let me get my soapbox out, guys. I got to stand up here. Well, you know, it's this crazy race because kids go into college now and they're presented with these phenomenal campuses. And so they go from campus to campus and the decision on what school to go to is largely made based on how nice are the dorms, how are the dining options, what other things are on campus, what else can I do, what sort of universe am I going to live in for this four years, never realizing that the fact that you've got a Pinkberry on campus means you're probably spending a little bit more money than you maybe should. It's like an arms race on campus. And so they use that and they have to increase the cost of overhead. And that and the fact that these lenders recognize, these private lenders recognize that this is almost a risk-free investment for them. The banks have very little risk involved. It's a student loan, so they know that the borrower isn't going to get out of it in bankruptcy, certainly not easily. They know that they can get a guarantor, which means They're going to get grandma to co-sign, and then if the loan goes belly up, well, guess what? They can sue and get a lien on grandma's house in most states, so they're going to get paid that way. There's no government oversight. Most of the loans are variable interest rates. I can go on and on and on. Mm. I've seen private student loans with a 30-year repayment term and no cap on the variable interest rate. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's insane. How do you give that to an 18-year-old based upon the fact that they think that they want to do whatever it is that they want to do in their life? They have no concept of that ability to long-term plan. And they go to grandma and they say, hey, grandma, will you sign a loan? Well, you know, as far as grandma's concerned, they're going to be a multi-billionaire when they graduate from college. So of course, I'm co-sign for you. The older generations have no understanding of what the cost is and what the return on investment is reasonably mm-hmm. coming out the other side. So I'll get off my soapbox now. No, that's okay. It's funny that you say that because I just read an article today that said that the Louisiana State University just built an $85 million recreation center that includes a lazy river. <laughs> Great. Could you believe that? I, right. I, yes. I, I, I consider it a treat right now as an adult when we go somewhere and there's a lazy river. I've never had that opportunity when I was at college between exams, <laughs> but at the same time, their library is crumbling due to extensive flooding. So priorities. <laughs> right, exactly. Yes, exactly. And, well, and, it, and who's going to pay for that? Right. Yeah. 
Exactly. The colleges are now selling a lifestyle rather than they're selling an education. And I remember an article that John wrote back in, I think it was 2013, 2014. It referenced a gentleman who put himself through college by working part-time and was able to rent an apartment. And this was back in the 70s. He paid for 100% of his tuition. He graduated with no debt. There is absolutely no school today that you could do that at. And it's because we offer this lifestyle rather than an education. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And we have all, as a society, we have bought into, and I don't know what kind of information your parents gave to you when you were going into college, but my parents gave me the line that, well, you have to go to school in order to make something of yourself, to right. be better, to make more money. And they truly believed it, and they still truly believe it. And if I was in 1987, I would as well. But as part and parcel of that, what we have done is we have created the expectation that you must go to college, come hell or high water. It doesn't matter what it costs. It doesn't matter what college it is. It doesn't matter how good it is or how bad it is, but you've got to get into college because without it, you're going to be nothing. And I got to tell you guys, I know a lot of people who didn't go to college and they seem to be doing just fine. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, better than most people, in fact, uh, some of them. We've taken the notion that there is honor in a skill, an honor in a trade. And we have traded that in for there is only honor in a piece of paper. And right. I think that that is incredibly sad. I think that we as a society lose out a tremendous amount based on that. And, you know, now you've got kids who come out of high school and well, maybe they weren't great students and they don't get into college. So they feel like they're losers and they're not, but they feel like they're losers because all their friends got into college. And so they fall into this emotional situation where they become desperate. And that desperation is what has led so many of them into the for-profit schools, into, you know, your DeVry's and your ITT's and, you know, all of those schools that quite frankly may not be giving as good of an education as they say that they are. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think that that's what perpetuates the problem. Right. Yeah. Well, I think we 100% agree. So what are the effects on your credit score and your credit report when you file for you know these forbearances and bankruptcy? How much of an impact does that have on you? Okay. We'll talk about bankruptcy first. Different bankruptcies remain evident on your credit report for different periods of time. It's for chapter seven bankruptcy, which is the quick and easy walk in one door, drop your debt and walk out the other door. That's 10 years that it remains evident on your credit report. For chapter 13, which is a repayment bankruptcy, it is seven years from the date of filing. So you repay a portion of your debt and it stays on for seven years. That being said, the impact of that filing is not nearly as long as the reporting period. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York did a study, I think it was two years ago now at this point, as we're talking, studying the credit scores of people who have filed for bankruptcy in general versus people who have lived with bad debt forever and ever and then finally gotten around to paying off all of the charge-offs or just waited until they fell off their credit reports. And they found that people who filed for bankruptcy 
have better credit scores 18 months after the bankruptcy is over than do people who have lived with charge-off and collection accounts who have then paid off those charge-off and collection accounts 18 months in. So, uh, wow. yeah, it, it was it was fascinating. And as even as a bankruptcy lawyer, I was shocked by that. I, yeah. I really was. I didn't expect it to be that way. Forbearance does not reduce your credit score. Using any of the income-driven repayment plans does not impact your credit score negatively. However, under FHA rules, and they've been waffling back and forth for quite some time, but under FHA rules, if you are in forbearance or deferment, the underwriter must use the 2% formula to determine debt to income ratio. So they have to use 2% of the total loan balance as your presumed monthly payment on your federal student loan. So if you're in forbearance or deferment, you may actually have a tougher time getting a mortgage than if you are in one of the income-driven repayment plans, because then your payment's going to be lower than the 2% for the most part. Yeah. Well, that's that's very interesting. I wouldn't have expected any of that. And to be honest, I wouldn't have expected anyone who was in forbearance or in the bankruptcy process to even be able to qualify for a mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, FHA allows, I think it's two years post-bankruptcy qualified for a mortgage. I actually had a friend of mine file for bankruptcy probably about four or five years ago at this point. Went through bankruptcy. Six months later, she got T-boned in her car, had to go out, get a new car, called me up frantic. I'm never going to get a car loan. Walked out of the Ford dealership with a 0% APR car loan. And gr granted, that was a couple of years ago when, when rates were lower. But yeah, it happens. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. So, so to go back to the, the people who have filed for bankruptcy but yet have a better credit score 18 months after they're done their bankruptcy, right? Mm -hmm. Is that what you said? Mm -hmm. What Do you know what – is there a systematic reason why that's the case or do those people just tend to, to think to themselves, okay, I've filed for bankruptcy. I need to get my act together and that they just do that themselves? Wow. I wish it were that. <laughs> I, I would love to be put out of business for lack of need. Unfortunately, that's not it. From a dollars and cents perspective, once you come out of bankruptcy, you don't owe any money. Right. Nobody is sitting on your shoulder. So if you're making even, say, $40,000 a year and you've got $50,000 worth of credit card debt, this I know we're going far afield from student loans, but let's say you make 40 a year, you've got $50,000 worth of credit card debt, you've got a lot of drag financially. If you go through bankruptcy, and again, presuming that your debts weren't current and they were in collections or whatever, you come out of bankruptcy you're still making 40 grand a year, but you've got no financial drag on you. You are far more attractive as a loan candidate to any financial institution because you've got more money available. So there's that. And for the student loan borrower, what's really nice is, and it's kind of the only nice thing, but you come out of bankruptcy, assuming that you begin making your student loan payments on time post-bankruptcy, that new payment history report after your bankruptcy. You're building new good credit after the old bad credit. 
I like to tell people that you guys ever watch any of the Eddie Murphy stand up when we were younger? Oh, yeah. um, okay. So I tell people that it's like, Eddie, what have you done for me lately? It's like, <laughs> um, um, and you know, they're going to get uh, divorced. And she says, what have you done for me lately? It's the same thing with your credit reports. A large chunk of how your credit score is determined is how have you been paying your loans? How have you been making ends meet and paying your obligations lately? Don't tell me about what happened four years ago. Tell me how you're doing now, because now is really what's the most important thing. Mm -hmm. So if you're making your new student loan payments, you're showing that things are better for you financially. Gotcha. Yeah. I think your payment history is 35% of your credit yeah. score. Yeah. yeah. Well, and your credit utilization is, I think, 30%. So if mm-hmm. your credit utilization goes from 100% down to zero <laughs> that quickly, then you can see yeah. how it would have an impact on your credit score pretty yep. quickly. Yeah, absolutely. So if I've got a lot of student loan debt, there's so many ways to ask this question. I guess straightforward. If I have a, student, a lot of student loan debt and I die, what happens? I guess if I have a personal loan and somebody else co-signed for that, I guess it defaults to them, right? Yeah. For federal student loans, the obligation to repay a federal student loan ends when either the borrower dies or the student dies. And there's a distinction there because we have parent plus loans, federal student loans that a parent takes out for the child's education. So the parent is actually the borrower on that loan. When the parent dies or the child dies, that loan is discharged. That makes sense. Right. For private student loans, that does not happen. The loan becomes a debt of the estate. So if there's any estate, if there's a house or stocks or bonds or investments or whatever, that loan gets paid out from the proceeds of that estate. If there is no estate, then there's nobody to collect from. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and that's why it's it's very important for individuals who are thinking about a student loan, either for themselves or for their child, need to be very concerned about that whole idea of cosigner. Because if there is no estate, then they go after the cosigner, right? Yes, absolutely. And just to make matters a lot worse, federal student loans go into default once you're 270 days past you. That's federal regulations. Private student loans go past due depending upon what the promissory notes say. And many of the promissory notes will say when you miss a payment, you go into default, that we understand. Or when either the borrower or the guarantor files for bankruptcy, or when either the borrower or the guarantor dies. So I actually had a client about 18 months ago at this point, owed $40,000 in private student loan debt, was making the payments religiously Every single month, on time, never missed a beat. Grandfather was uh, was their guarantor. Grandpa passed away. The loan was put into default. The client was sent to collections. And the client, they called me up because they were being sued by the lender for non-payment, in spite of the fact that they had been making payments every single month until the loan defaulted. But it defaulted through no fault of their own. So that's something else for guarantors to really be concerned about. And it's one of the reasons why a lot of people have started talking about taking out term life insurance Mm -hmm. on the guarantor just for payment in full of the student loan. 
Yeah. We also wrote an article about that, about <laughs> yeah. the need yeah. for term. But you know, what's interesting is we took the tack of that the parents should take out that term life insurance on the student. But mm -hmm. it sounds like anyone who's on that loan really should have that term life insurance for that policy. Yeah. Or yeah. I'm sorry, for the loan. Yeah, absolutely. The borrower as well as the guarantor. I just think that it's a prudent thing to do. And term life is so much less expensive than whole life that uh, for for the amount of money on the loan, I, I think that it's definitely something for somebody to look into. Exactly. Gotcha. So I'm going to ask this question knowing that by the time this is published, it might be outdated information. <laughs> and we're also opening a giant can of worms. <laughs> because oh, no. news seems to change a couple times a day, in fact. Depends lately. on what he tweets. Um, <laughs> now you know what we're talking about. How, how will President Trump's tax reform plan affect student loan borrowers? I've been seeing a lot of talk about changes in taxes and he's planning on doing something because Congress couldn't. So what are your yeah. thoughts? Well, I don't know what people are saying, but I've heard that it's the best tax reform plan <laughs> ever, ever. Right. Really. Alexander Hamilton got up from the dead and said, this was the best. Anyway, right. you know, Why I have to get up from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but seriously, the, the jury's still out. It's not really clear what, is going to happen with the individual tax credits and deductions. And we're talking about the student loan interest above the line tax deduction, which goes to reducing adjusted gross income. That's really the thing that most people are utilizing and are thinking about when they're thinking about how the tax reform is going to work. He's increasing the standard deduction, taking away a whole bunch of other deductions. I am not optimistic. I'm really not optimistic about any of this, guys. I, I got to tell you, <laughs> that's a meta statement. Um, <laughs> it really is. I think that what we've got here is an administration that is not friendly to student loan borrowers at all under any circumstances. We've got a secretary of education who is systematically gutting everything possible in terms of the protections that were put into place for borrowers under previous administrations. I don't think that this is going to go anywhere good for anybody with student loan debt. And that's why I've been advocating that when the midterm elections come around, or even when your state elections come around, you need to be considering this as one of your major issues to be looking at. How does your candidate stand on the issue? Because I think that a lot of people who would need student loan relief in some fashion from the government voted unwittingly for somebody who doesn't think that they deserve it. Yeah. Right. So I'll say this. It, it probably was true even before January 20th, 2017. But it's even more true now. You should probably be more judicious about how much student loans you take on. Right. Or how quickly you pay them off. Right. Mm -hmm. Extra money should definitely be going to them. Exactly. Yeah. I think that especially the private loans, because again, the vast majority of them are variable rates. Many of those private student loans don't have caps on their interest rates. And that's really the scary thing. Any mortgage that you've ever seen, any adjustable rate mortgage has a cap on the interest right. rate. Mm -hmm. student, right. loans, student loans don't. Could you imagine paying 20% a year on your student loans? I mean, just, yeah, that could, that could make you homeless. Yeah. yeah 
pretty quick. I don't want to, but I can actually see it happening. I mean, I just, you know, I've been around long enough to know what financial institutions and government institutions can do when they, when they want to. <laughs> yep. Yeah, absolutely. The silver lining here is federal student loans, if you default, they can chase you until your foot hits the grave. Yeah. So we understand that. Private student loans, though, because they are private obligations, they are subject to what are called statutes of limitation. There is only a limited amount of time, and it does vary state by state, but there is only a limited amount of time after you go into default that a private student lender can take action against you. And the private student loans, the only way they can take action against you is if they use the court system. They've got to sue you. They've got to get a judgment. Anything that they're going to do against you is enforcement of that judgment. And so it's constrained by the way that state laws work and different laws for different states. The federal government doesn't need to file a lawsuit against you in order to start a garnishment or a tax refund offset, but the private student loans, they only have that single road to go on, which means that you've got some legal protection. So don't abandon all hope if yeah. you're sitting on these defaulted private student loans because there may be some other options for you out there as well. Gotcha. gotcha. Thank you. Mm -hmm. sure. Okay. So I've got some scenarios for you. Scenario sure. one. I'm young, single, living alone. I'm totally cute though. <laughs> I've got minimal assets and a lot of student loan debt. What are the pros and cons for me for filing for bankruptcy? You've got minimal assets. Mm -hmm. You've got a lot of student loan debt. My questions, because I don't know if you guys know this, but when you go to law school, they train you never to answer a question straight. And it's always, well, it depends. So, <laughs> right. you know, so that having been said, it really depends. What's the rest of your debt look like? So if you're going into bankruptcy, is there another reason to be in bankruptcy aside from the student loan debt? You know, do you have $60,000 worth of credit card debt that maybe filing for bankruptcy is going to, at the very least, free up enough money to be able to pay that student loan debt? Don't know. But if all you've got are student loan debts, I wouldn't go into bankruptcy. You're young, you're single. You've got your entire productive life ahead of you, presuming that you don't have any mental or physical issues that prevent you from earning more. I don't really see that as being a fact situation where a judge would allow you to wipe out those student loans in bankruptcy. I would look at the kinds of student loans that you have, and I would put together a plan beyond a normal budget to be able to maximize your cash flow so that you can afford to pay them. But to be able to look at those student loans and figure out whether one of the income-driven repayment plans may lower the monthly load on the federals and also to look at the privates and see if even if you make the payments, are you actually going to reasonably pay them off? Or are you in one of those situations where maybe a strategic default makes the most sense in order to be able to create some leverage, perhaps for a settlement of that debt? Because private student loans do settle. They do. Federals gotcha. don't. Privates do. Okay. Would it be a general rule of thumb? Obviously, I'm sure that there are exceptions that if you only have student loan debt, it probably doesn't make sense to file for bankruptcy. Yeah, that's my rule of thumb. Okay. Gotcha. 
but always talk to an attorney. Right. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Pay them by the hour. Right. I, I will remind you that in your reiteration of my description of my scenario, you didn't mention that I'm also cute. <laughs> <laughs> I took that for a given. <laughs> oh, thanks. All right. So we've got one more scenario for you. Okay. So we've got a mid to late 30s couple married. They're homeowners with about $50,000 in their 401ks combined. They have student loan debt and consumer debt but they're mm-hmm. having trouble making their debt repayments. Are they a candidate for bankruptcy? And what are the pros and cons? First of all, are they legally married? Yes. Yes. So if they're legally married, they've got a larger family size when it comes to their student loans. And I'll ta- I'm tackling the student loans first. They've got significant assets in their did you say 50,000 in their 401s or? Yes. yes. Well, not significant, but they've got something in their 401k. So they're funding for their retirement. It's a family size of two. They've got at this point above the line deductions to reduce their adjusted gross income. There's at least some chance that they can reduce the payments on the federal student loans to a point where they have a little bit of breathing room. The money in their 401ks is for the most part, and assuming that they're just standard stock 401s and they haven't been front-loading or anything like that, they're going to be protected from the reach of creditors inside bankruptcy or outside bankruptcy. 401ks are nice safe havens for money. The home, however, may or may not be safe haven in bankruptcy. And that depends upon where you live and what they're called exemptions, what pullbacks you get in your state when you file for bankruptcy. And some states use federal exemptions, some use state exemptions, some have unlimited homestead exemptions, Texas and Florida, some have virtually none. So it really depends upon how much that house is worth, how much equity you have. Presuming that all of the house is gonna be protected, the 401k is protected, we know that, student loans, nothing's going to help. Then we look at the consumer debt and we determine whether or not there's any way that we can keep those payments up to snuff. Can you make the, my, my rule of thumb is if you can afford to pay off your consumer debt over a three to five year period without court intervention, then you should. And when I say without court intervention, I mean under the terms of the lending agreement, not through a debt management plan or a debt settlement plan or anything else. If you could afford to pay that off on your own through smart budgeting, through making more spending less, you should absolutely do that. Psychologically, it's going to make you feel better. Forget about, forget about a credit score. It's just going to make you feel better. Nobody feels good going into bankruptcy, even if it's the right thing. Nobody feels good about it. So if you could afford to make those consumer debt payments, do that. If you can't, then will getting rid of the consumer debt make it easier to pay the student loans, to fund the 401ks, to pay down the mortgage? If bankruptcy is a good last resort that's going to help accomplish that goal, then go into bankruptcy. But barring that, I don't recommend it. I'm the only bankruptcy lawyer I know of who (laughs) actively tells people not to file for bankruptcy. I I take a very holistic view of personal finances. I think that bankruptcy is a really good tool in the right situation, but it's not the only tool out there. And so it's something that everybody should consider, but you know, don't discount bankruptcy, but also don't discount everything else that may put you in a better financial position long-term. 
Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you for answering those very specific questions. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I have to say, you've really explained this. This could be very confusing, and you know, there's a lot of lawyeries in here. There's a lot of accounting in here, and you did a great job. So, thank you very much for for coming on and dumbing this you, down for that's us. That's why you're our expert in this field. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, thanks, guys. Absolutely, thanks for John. Absolutely. So, where can our listeners find out more about you if they want to uh, talk with you or connect with you? They can put my name into the old Google bar and find me, but my home, I guess, online is consumerhelpcentral.com. I also have a podcast at studentloanshow.com, which is in the process of being turned into a pure Q&A student loan podcast. So just trying to answer as many questions from as many people as possible. So those are really the two best places to find me, I'd say. Awesome. That's great. And then are you on social media as well? I am. You can find me on the Twitter. I'm not on the Twitter in the middle of the night for a variety of reasons. <laughs> and you can also find me on Facebook, Consumer Help Central, also Student Loan Show, or just, again, put my name in the bar and you'll find me. I'm right there. Great. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank no you, No problem. Thank you, guys. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. <laughs> well, thank you, Jay, for not only an informative conversation, but a fun one. We always enjoy hanging out with you. If you're struggling with student loan debt and considering your options, including filing for bankruptcy, connect with Jay Fleischman at ConsumerHelpCentral.com and listen to Jay's podcast, The Student Loan Show. Please remember to like, comment, and review this or any other Queer Money podcast on iTunes so that we can reach more LGBT people and help more LGBT people become financially free. Until next week. Okay. We just serviced you, now you get to service us by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes and signing up for the Queer Money Lifestyle Newsletter at queer.money. Well, I'm not really gay. (laughs) (laughs) Would help me if I had a personal chef made all my my healthy meals for me. Right. So instead I'll have a Snickers tonight for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) The other end, I like the butts, so... (laughs) If you or someone you know is in or near Denver on Thursday, June 13th, go to QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour to reserve a spot to win amazing swag, including our very popular bride sunglasses, free coffee, and of course, an hour of Queer Money Bingo hosted by yours truly. That's QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour.